Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank, for, thank you for your word. We pray that you would come now by your Holy Spirit and give us ears to hear what you have to say to the church, that you would strengthen us, uh, transform us, assure us of your grace toward us, and make us ready for the coming of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. One of my favorite movies is that critically acclaimed 1990 movie, Home Alone. <laughs> There's a scene in there. Uh, young Kevin has been left at home during Christmas vacation on accident, and while the family's away, while all the, the, all the families on the street are on vacation, there's the, the wet bandits are coming to break into the houses and steal everything. And uh, they come to Kevin's house, but he scares them away the first time. And there's a scene where he's walking down the street and he says, next time those guys come back, I'll be ready. Right? Our Lord Jesus used that image too to talk about his coming. He said it's going to be sudden like a thief in the night. You're not going to be, you know, you're not going to be able to plot it on your, your calendar. So often in the New Testament, it talks about the coming of Jesus as being um, soon and imminent and, and the need, the necessity that we be ready. Jesus tells parables about it, you know, uh, make sure there's oil in your lamp when the bridegroom comes. Make sure that you're ready. First Peter says, uh, be sober-minded, gird up your loins, be ready. And this passage here in Revelation chapter 22 says, be ready. I think that's the big idea this morning. Jesus is coming soon to bless and to judge. So be ready. Jesus is coming soon to bless and to judge, so be ready. First of all, you can see, I mean, it's, it's repeated so many times in this passage, Jesus is coming uh, in verse 7, in verse 12, in verse 20, Jesus himself says, I am coming soon. In verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. The one who hears says, come. John adds his amen. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus is coming. And it's going to be soon, the scripture says. Four times in these verses, um, 6, 7, 12, and 20, we get the, the, these things which are in Revelation are going to come to pass soon. The Jesus is coming soon. He's coming soon. He's coming soon. It's imminent. Uh, every Christian in every age should be expecting the coming of the Lord Jesus. He's coming quickly is another way that it's sometimes translated. He could come at any time, any day. And so are we ready to receive him? Now, it seems like a long time, doesn't it? He, Jesus said, I'm coming soon. So we, we think uh, Revelation is written around 90 AD. So it's been 1,900 years plus some since the Lord Jesus said, I'm coming soon. And yet he still hasn't come. But we remember 2 Peter 3, verse 8, which says, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. And so as one uh, preacher said, it's only been two days. <laughs> Jesus is coming soon. And, and th that means that the time is short to call people to repentance. But as we look at verse 10, uh, Jesus says to John, don't seal up the words of this prophecy. There's an, there's an allusion there to what God says to Daniel in Daniel chapter 12, verses 4 and 9. In, in the book of Daniel, God had given uh, Daniel this vision of the coming of his kingdom, and he told Daniel, seal these things up for the latter days. You know, now is not the time for these prophecies to go forth. Now is not the time for these things to be fulfilled. So seal them up for the latter days. But with Jesus, the latter days have come. And he says, don't seal these things up. Make it known. Tell it to everybody. Let people read. Let people hear. Let people know that I am coming soon. This message can't wait because I'm coming 
soon. In 2 Peter, it actually connects with 2 Peter uh, very well. Why, is, why does God seem slow, so slow in sending Jesus back to rule and to reign? Because God desires that as many as possible would come to repentance. And so we have this uh, call from God to share the message that Jesus is coming soon. He's bringing a blessing for those who know him and trust him and follow him as Lord, but he's also bringing a judgment, a punishment on the wicked and the immoral. We're called to tell people about the grace of God, but also warn them about the cataclysm that is to come. I think of uh, John Wesley, the, the famous Anglican uh, who started the, the Methodist movement, and he used to go out into uh, near where the, the coal miners would leave the, the coal mines at the end of the day and stand on a stump or stand on a rock and say, flee the wrath to come. And that was his message, right? If you want to know more, meet me over here. Sometimes we're called to warn, but the time is short. Jesus is coming soon. Because when Jesus returns, um, the the truth about us will be revealed. Who we really are in our heart, who we are as a spiritual person will be revealed. Sometimes you can look at somebody and they've got everything together on the outside, but on the inside, they're full of uh, all manner of spiritual unhealth. That's why in verse 11, uh, it says, uh, let the evildoers still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. That's not a commandment from God for people to continue in their sin. It's saying when Jesus returns, what, what's true will actually be revealed. There will not be any confusion. God is not uh, manipulated or mocked or confused. God will show who is holy, who is righteous, who is evil, and who is immoral. So it's a call to repentance, but it's also a uh, a warning and a promise that, that the truth about a people, the truth about each person will be revealed when Jesus returns. It's almost like when a hurricane comes, we're about to hit hurricane season, and Lord willing, uh, we won't have any major storms or, or live in the tension of, it might hit you in 14 days. Um, hopefully we don't have to live in that tension, but when a hurricane comes, we know if a building is up to code, don't we? We know if, if those windows are hurricane windows. We know if the, the building's been built on solid ground. And when Jesus returns, what's true about us in the deepest places will be revealed. Jesus is coming soon. The time is short. He's coming soon to bless and to judge. You see this in verses, uh, starting in verse 12. He says he's coming to judge each person for what they've done and to give um, recompense to reward or punish based on uh, whether a person is wicked or righteous. And he has the authority to do this. You know? We don't like to be told that, that some outside authority is telling us how we ought to be living our life and has the right to say whether we're doing a good job or a bad job. But Jesus has this authority. He is the alpha, the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is, uh, those are, the alpha and omega is what God called himself back in chapter one. Do you remember that? Jesus Christ is the very son of God. He's ascended on high and he is the creator, redeemer, and he will bring in the kingdom. He has the authority to say, this is right, this is wrong, this is how you ought to live, this is how you ought not to live. And he's gonna come and bring, with that authority, to bring his judgment. He is the alpha and the omega. So how do we know? How do we know if we will receive the blessing or if we will receive the punishment or the curse or the judgment? In verse uh, 14, it says, those who wash their robes in the blood, those who wash their robes will be given access to the eternal city. Those who wash their robes in the blood will be given access to the tree of life. 
This is the, the same blessing that's promised. You remember back at the very beginning of the book of Revelation when Lenny preached, there's a promise of blessing to those who hear and keep the words of this book, those who wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And that's a very vivid, vivid image, isn't it? Um, and it's counterintuitive also that the way to cleanse your filthy garments is to wash them in blood. But it's a symbolic way of saying that Jesus' life poured out for us on the cross provides cleansing and forgiveness. And that through our faith in him, we are restored and made uh, part of his body and declared to be righteous. He gives us eternal life. We, have, we can eat from the tree of life. We have eternal life. That's a symbolic way of saying that. We enter the city. We enter in God's presence. We enter in God's people. Jesus bore our judgment. He took away our sin on the cross. And if we have faith in him, that's, that's what the symbol of washing your robe in his blood is. It's putting your whole trust in him. Admitting that you, you bring nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. That's what we're saying to Jesus. We wash our robes in the blood of the lamb. Now you might be, be thinking, wait a second, but he just said he's going to judge according to works. And now you're telling me that you have to wash your robes in the blood of the lamb. And if you do that, you're completely forgiven. Well, that's one of the great tensions of our faith that we are justified, we're declared to be in the right solely by faith in Jesus. There's nothing we can do to fix our broken record of sin and wrong and evil because every one of us falls short of the glory of God. And so God does something for us in Jesus that we could never do for ourselves and we can only receive it by grace. And yet even as we receive that forgiveness, we are given other gifts and other blessings like new birth. We're, we're a new creation. The old is gone, the, the new has come. We, we're a new person. We're given the Holy Spirit. And so if we have true faith, that new birth, that Holy Spirit in us, we are going to be bearing the fruit of repentance. We're going to hear the voice of Jesus and say, yeah, I need to, that's my Lord. I'm going to obey him. And so it's both that, that we are justified solely by faith. And yet if we are, if we have true faith, we will be working out our salvation Thomas Cranmer, who is the original architect of the, the first prayer book, he wrote a homily on justification and salvation, and he quotes uh, a church father named St. Basil, he, and here's the quote that he uses. He says, this is a perfect and whole rejoicing in God, when a man advances not himself for his own righteousness, but acknowledges himself to lack true justice and righteousness, and to be justified by faith in Christ. So Basil and Kramer are saying the way we are justified, the way we are forgiven and declared to be in the right is nothing that we bring. It's purely an act of God, purely an offer of grace. And yet Kramer ends his sermon. Here's how he ends his sermon. These are the fruits of true faith. To do good as much as lies in us to every man and above all things, in all things, to advance the glory of God of whom only we have our sanctification, justification, salvation, and redemption, to whom be ever glory, praise, and honor, world without end. Amen. Or, more simply, as Luther put it, it's impossible to separate faith and works just as it's impossible to separate heat and light from a fire. Heat's not light and light's not heat, but they always go together. So we, are, we wash our robes and God brings us into his family and he pours out his spirit, and we seek to live and honor him with our lives, with all that we do, with everything we think, with all our goals and dreams, with how we spend our money, with how we love our kids, 
with how we do our jobs, with how we speak to other people's, the people that are in the church and outside of the church. We seek to honor God. We seek to love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. That's how we know we'll, we'll receive the blessing. If we have faith and we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling because Jesus is coming soon to bless and he's also coming soon to punish says he's going to punish the wicked in verse 15. Um, the, the dogs, the, the liars, the idolaters, the immoral, they're going to be cast out of the city. They're going to be outside of the gates. Those who break the covenant, those who love lying and deceit, those who, are, um, those who maybe appear on the outside to be you know, a good person, a person we would like to be like, but really on the inside, they have given their allegiance to Babylon. They are living an immoral life. They have a, a, a twisted and broken heart. He warns that, that these ones, there's a judgment coming. Just in the previous chapter, it's the same list, more or less, of people that are thrown into the lake of fire with the beast and the dragon and death. There is a judgment coming. And Jesus said he's the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. We actually sang that in our opening processional hymn, uh, that Jesus is the morning star. Both of those are signs or symbols Symbolic ways of describing his role as the Messiah who defeats all God's enemies and will reign on the throne of heaven. He is coming to defeat death. He already defeated the devil in the cross. He already has defeated sin. And he will bring the judgment in the end. But even there, even there in verse 17, do you see? Even in verse 17, there is a call. There's a warning of judgment, and then there's again a call to be received back into God's presence. Let the one who is thirsty come, and I will give him the water of life without price. He's ready to forgive. There's that old hymn, um, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded by the fall. Jesus, ready, uh, Jesus stands ready to forgive us. There's even an offer of grace at this moment of judgment. We have that message, right? We get to go forth and tell people there is a judgment coming, but, but you can be forgiven. You can be restored. You can be transformed. You can be given a new life, a life in relationship with God because Christ paid for your sins. So Jesus is coming soon, and he's coming soon to bring blessing and judgment. So be ready. What, is this verse, what do these verses tell us about how to be ready? First of all, it says to be ready means to keep the words of this book. So in, that's back in verse 7. We actually didn't read it in our scripture reading, but if, if you're looking at the Bible, just if you look back at verse 7, it says, blessed is the one who keeps the words of this book. That's exactly what he said at the beginning, Revelation chapter 1. What does it mean to keep the words of the book? I think what it means is to live the life that Revelation has been describing, to recognize that there is a great battle going on between Babylon, the world system that leads us astray into sexual immorality and greed and, and uh, worldly forms of power, and there's a battle going on between Babylon and the bride, those who know Jesus and love Jesus and trust Jesus and follow Jesus, that you're in the midst of a battle, and that the way you win this battle, the way you're victorious, the way you conquer, the way you overcome is by resisting that temptation rather than, than leading a sexually immoral or greedy or any other number of immoral ways of living our life. Rather than doing that, we stay faithful to Jesus, even as we suffer. 
And as the world says, you know, wouldn't it be so much easier if you just left that whole Christianity thing and you could just do whatever you wanted with your body? You could just do whatever you wanted with your money? You could just do whatever you wanted? We resist that. We keep the words of the book by staying faithful to Jesus and resisting immorality. So we, Jesus is coming soon to bless and to judge. One way that we will be ready is if we keep the words of the book. Another way that we'll be ready is if, that we, if we worship God. So again, verse 9, right before our scripture reading began, John, so overwhelmed with the, the majesty and power of the angel, he, he falls down to worship. And the, and the angel says, you mustn't do that. I am a fellow servant with you. Worship God. Worship God. No matter how, how um, impressive or important or glorious or satisfying or desirous something else besides God looks, no matter how good it looks, worship God only. Isn't that, I mean, isn't that Eve's failure in the garden and Adam's failure in the garden? Have you ever noticed in that story, it says, when she saw that it was good for food, it looked good. And in that moment, it looked better than what God had said. So we'll be ready if we worship God. But I don't just mean come to church and worship in services, though that is crucially important for us to come and receive the sacrament and to hear preaching and to encourage one another and to pray and to sing. That's crucially important. But I, but I mean the worship that's going on all the time in your heart. You know, do, do you realize that all day, every day you're worshiping? You're, you're you're saying, that is beautiful, that is valuable, I need that, that makes me happy, that gives me satisfaction. All day long that's happening. And the question is, what's highest on your list of what gives you satisfaction and joy and meaning and a sense of rest? Is it God? Is it the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is it something else? You see, in the book of Revelation, the dragon and the beast, that's their whole gambit. They want to draw us away from worshiping God. They want to, through the seduction of, of sin, and let's just be honest, sometimes sin, we want to do it, don't we? We, we think in that moment, this is going to be better than what God says or who God is. So we're constantly being drawn away into idols in our heart. We make idols of all manner of things, all manner of good things. Uh, Tim Keller says, one way that you can diagnose your own heart and kind of re reflect on this, ask the Lord to, to give you the answers, the real answers to the, these two questions. One, uh, my life has meaning if fill in the blank. Career, possessions, relationship, uh, how people look at me. If people think I'm a good person, then my life has meaning. If my kids grow up and become what I want them to become, then my life has meaning. If people see how good I am at my job, then my life has meaning. Well, you may be on the verge of idolatry because the ultimate thing that matters, the reason your life has meaning is because you're made in the image of God and restored and are supposed to live for his glory. Or I have worth, I matter as a person if, fill in the blank. A friend of mine does college ministry, and in his first conversations with college students, he'll often give them this image. He says, imagine you have a box, and in that box, you're going to put the most important thing in the world to you. And if you put it in the box, you, it's going to make your life amazing. 
You're going you're to have all the joy, uh, all the contentment. You're going to be overflowing with happiness and purpose and meaning and contentment and all the th- things that we long for. But if you don't have it in the box, you're utterly destroyed. You despair of your life. What would you put in that box? Would it be the Lord Jesus Christ? Or if you're honest deep down, would it be something else? Because the book of Revelation is calling us to lay down the idols, to admit that we need forgiveness, and to worship God only. And then finally, uh, we could be ready if we keep the words of this book, if we continue to worship God from our hearts, and finally, if we submit to the word of God. Verses 18 and 19, you, you see these warnings. Don't add to the Bible. Don't, don't add or take away. Because if you add or take away, you will face condemnation. There will be plagues of judgment, and your, your place in the your access to the tree of life will be taken away. Now, he's speaking of the book of Revelation on the surface, but I think this applies to the whole Bible because if you look at verse 6, it says that these words are true. And uh, these words are true because God is true. Because Jesus in chapter 3 was the one who is the faithful and true witness. What, the reason the Bible is trustworthy is because God's trustworthy. And uh, it's also interesting that the Revelation, how Revelation uses the Old Testament, you know, through this sermon series. Have you seen how many times we've referred to uh, an allusion or a quotation from the Old Testament? That the Revelation looks at the Old Testament as this authoritative, true witness of the things of God, and it draws on that imagery, just as our Lord Jesus did. And, And then also, the Revelation comes at the end of the Bible, right? Like, there's Turn, turn one page, it's, it's over. Like, it's done. And so it has this special position so that when it says, don't add to this, don't take away from this, these things are trustworthy and true, it resonates back all the way over to the book of Genesis, that it's all reliable, it's all true. Don't, uh, don't raise your own opinion over the Bible. Don't raise your own ideas and thoughts over the Bible. Don't raise what someone else says over the Bible, but let the scriptures be your guide. Because it's in meditating and learning the scriptures that we come to know God more deeply. We come to uh, recognize and see his grace all around us. And in Jesus, more and more and more, we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as Second Peter ends. So submit yourself to the Bible. Now, of course, you can only know if you're adding or taking away if you know the Bible, right? So you have to be in the Scripture, steeped in the Bible. You know, I was thinking of John, I mentioned John Wesley earlier. People were always amazed at John Wesley because just in everyday speech, it was like biblical phrases and ideas and clauses and verses came out, and he wasn't quoting them. He was just, he was so steeped in the Bible that it was coming out of his pores. Like when you eat too much deli meat, coming out of his pores because he's just consuming, voraciously consuming the scriptures and it's just coming out of his body, coming out in his speech. These words are trustworthy and true, so submit yourself to them. Jesus says, I am coming soon. He's telling the truth. He's coming soon. I read a story this week uh, of a pilot at the end of the first Iraq war finished his last, last mission, and, and he was told, you can fly home, you know? He, he immediately, you know, got the refuel the plane, get the crew together, fly home over Europe, over the Atlantic, land in Massachusetts, rent a car, drive all night, and get home in the middle of the night in Pennsylvania, and he drives, pulls up to his driveway, and there's a banner over the garage 
that says, welcome home, dad. And he went inside and he asked his wife, how did you guys know I was coming? And she said, I heard the war was over, so I knew you'd be coming soon. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ has won the victory. The war is over, and he's coming soon. So let's be ready. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, scripture that exhorts us to be sober-minded, to gird up our loins, to have oil in our lamps, to be ready to receive our Lord Jesus. We pray by your Holy Spirit you would strengthen us to be people who keep the words of your prophecy, who worship you with all of our life, with our whole heart, and who submit ourselves daily to the word of God. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.